Welcome back. Our first question. I have a Mormon neighbor that I would like to witness to. Do you have any suggestions on where to start other than being a good neighbor and loving them? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. The most important question to start with a Mormon is, how do you understand or differentiate truth from error? What is your methodology? Don't start with Bible truth. Don't start with, uh, start with their method. The, the, the issue with Mormons is that they are taught um, to believe a, ver, a verse out of the book of Moroni, chapter 10, verse 4, which says, And when ye shall receive these things, I would exhort you that ye would ask God, the Eternal Father, in the name of Christ, if these things are not true. And if ye shall ask with sincere heart, with real intent, having the faith in Christ, he will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost. And by the power of the Holy Ghost, you may know the truth of all things. This is their key passage and the key element for Mormons to differentiate truth. And what it means, what they're told it means is, if you want to know what truth is, you do not study the Word of God and let the Word of God reveal truth to you. If you have a question, then you go to your prayer closet and you pray and you stay in prayer. It might take days until you are given the warm bosom. The Holy Spirit comes upon you and impresses you with a warm feeling inside of what's true. That's how you discern the truth of all things. James chapter 1, of course, tells us that such an approach is how the devil misleads us. We are led astray when we're enticed by our own evil desires or feelings. And this is a methodology to uh, obscure truth from taking hold in the mind. I have found in my interactions with Mormons that um, <clears throat> the way the truth actually works, and you see this on the road to Emmaus, when Jesus is walking with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, uh, he uh, revealed to them the truth from the Old Testament scriptures. And it said... As the truth is being revealed, did not our hearts burn within us? Okay? There is an actual conviction that the truth itself brings to the heart. That is the spirit of truth working through the word of truth to bring conviction to the heart. That's how it actually works. Okay? And so there is, a, there is an aspect there. And when I've worked with Mormons, and we have a particular doctrine working on, I show them from the Scripture, you can see that very process happening like the road to the mass. I've had them get excited. I've never heard that before. I'm, and then they'll say, and this is if you're, so listener, if, you, if you're the person, you will do this, and you will see the light up, and they will get excited, and they'll say, I'm going to go home and pray about this. <laughs> yes, uh-oh. That's right, because they're not going home to pray like you're praying. When you pray, Lord, help me have greater insight. Bring more scripture. Help me to know if this is true or not. Uh, by the consistency of the integrative evidence-based approach, your revelations in, in real life, in scripture, and in nature, all harmonizing together. Okay, That's not what they mean. What they mean is they're going to pray until they get a conviction in their heart of what's true. And I've had this happen over and over again. They will pray, and they will pray until they get a feeling that what, I, what they discovered in our Bible study is untrue. And they will come back and say, well, I've prayed about it, and I'm convinced from the Holy Spirit that what you're teaching is wrong. And I, was, and I will say, well, can you show me from Scripture? No, the Spirit has just spoken to my spirit. <laughs> and this is what happens over and over again. So uh, I, I never find it fruitful to do a Bible study with a Mormon. Not at least until you answer that question first. If you answer that question, they say that they will go with evidence of Scripture integrated with other revelations of God, then, then maybe you can make some headway. But I haven't found one willing to do it because Book of Moroni has put the false belief in their head about how God works, and as long as they hold that false belief, you can't make any headway past it. Is it biblical or cultural for a man to have his bride's father's permission to marry her? If a bride's father is against the wedding and the couple wants to be together, would it be unbiblical for them to marry anyway? So I don't find any direct 
um, biblical instruction from God that this permissions are be to. These are cultural things that are recorded in certain ways to have happened in Scripture. For instance, Jacob got the permission, but it wasn't simply permission. Women, daughters, were property of the father in a certain cultural way, and he had to pay a dowry or purchase them and enrich the father for the daughters. And so this idea of permission really comes from the historical cultural setting in which daughters were basically governed or owned and did not have their own agency to act for themselves. They had to have the permission. And when they married, they left the rulership because women are to be ruled by men. Okay. And they left the rulership of their husband for the ruler, excuse me, the rulership of their father for the rulership of their husband. And the men would make a deal to, to, and, and the, for the wife. So, so this is all cultural as far as I'm concerned. Take from the concept of what was going to happen after sin, that a man would rule over his wife and she would be subordinate to him. And this was uh, not a prescription by God, but a description of what fear and selfishness do in the heart after sin. And fear and selfishness result in weak seeking protection from the strong and strong dominating the weak. And therefore, God was saying marriages that I designed to be co-equal and mutually rewarding and fulfilling uh, are now going to devolve in which the men who are stronger are going to dominate the weak and the weak are going to seek strong men to be protected. And that's what happened. So um, regarding the question of the fathers against it, I would advise against it. Uh, Because when you marry, you do not marry simply the individual, at least in most circumstances. Um, Sure, there are people that are orphans and have no family. But typically when you marry, you marry a family. And and, And people come with strings and baggage. And if you marry a family that is un, into a family that is unsupportive of that relationship, you are marrying for perpetual conflict, and, and it's going to be an uphill battle the entire time. And typically what, what, what often happens that I've seen is that the bride whose father was against it oftentimes down the road comes to resent the husband because she feels alienated from her family because she was forced to choose, and even though at the time she's infatuated and loves. It doesn't always happen. Again, there's wide variation, but... It's a, it's, you should think long and hard before you pursue that relationship. Please uh, explain why the Bible states that Jesus' feet will not touch the ground when he comes back. But the desire of ages in chapter 87 uh, says, from, the, uh, from this mountain he will ascend, uh, he, he was to ascend to heaven. Upon this summit his feet will rest when he shall come again. Uh, because the desire of ages is actually quoting the scripture, and the uh, the idea that his feet won't touch the ground. Can anybody have a Bible verse for that? Anybody actually have a Bible verse for that? No, no there. I, I couldn't find a Bible verse for that. That is a that is a myth, as far as I can tell. So, so um, person who put this question, if you have a Bible verse that his feet won't touch the ground, uh, please uh, please put that in. But if you look, um, I just do a quick search here: feet and mount. You will find in Zechariah chapter 14 the following. It says, then the, uh, and, and the setting here is uh, chapter 14, the, co- the Lord comes and reigns and says, the day of the Lord is coming uh, when your plunder will be divided among you and so forth and so on. Then the Lord will go around and fight against those nations. It says, on that day, his feet will stand on Mount of Olives on the east of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley and so forth and so on. So the Bible actually teaches his feet do touch the ground at the Mount of Olives. Uh, at his coming and split in thunder. Now you can have the discussions at the the second coming or the third coming. That's a different uh, conversation to have, and we can look at that. Um, but 
I couldn't find one that says his feet doesn't touch. I think it comes from the idea of the, of the resurrection, where it says that at the resurrection in Thessalonians, that the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we which are alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds, so shall we be ever, so, so we'll, we'll meet the Lord in the clouds, so shall we ever be with the Lord. And so from that, people infer that his feet don't touch the ground, and that maybe this is the third coming. I couldn't find a text that actually states that. So Ellen White is actually using scripture out of Zechariah for her chapter that you mentioned. Matthew 27:53 describes one of the most spectacular events in the Bible uh, in that many saints were resurrected. It's describing at Jesus' resurrection, the graves were opened and many saints came forward and walked around and witnessed. I don't think the scripture gives any indication if these people were raised to heaven with Christ or these people consider the first fruits. That's my personal understanding, that they went around and gave witness, but they were not risen from the dead like Lazarus was, who was raised back into this mortal body. They were ri- r- raised... And, and went to Christ, went to heaven with Christ as the first fruits. And they are some of the people that you read about in Revelation who are sitting on the 12 thrones around the throne of God. These are human beings sitting on those thrones already that Jesus shares his throne with. And these are part of the people who took that as well as Enoch, Moses, and Elijah who are already in heaven. Many times after Jesus heals someone, he says, go and sin no more. To my knowledge, he or his disciples never asked anyone about their childhood or experiences in life. So from a psychiatrist's point of view, do you have to to discuss in detail people's life experiences, or should we use Jesus' example, go and sin no more? So as far as I know, he only said this twice. It's not many times. There were two specific occasions he said this. The woman caught in adultery drug before him, where are your accusers? They're not here. Go and sin no more. Because she was living a life that she was already convicted of as a prostitute, living in sin, and her sin was causing her to live in fear and guilt and shame, and it was destroying her. And he, uh, neither do I condemn you. He gave her grace. He forgave her. But if she wanted to live without further guilt and shame and without further damage to herself, then she had to stop hurting herself by doing these things. And this was This was the point. And the other is the, the paralytic at the uh, pool of Bethesda. And uh, some Bible commentators suggest that his particular ailment was a result of um, wild and abusive living, that he damaged himself through that. Um, and you could uh, use a metaphor that we could relate to today, would be, say, somebody in an ICU and liver failure from heavy alcohol use. And then uh, Jesus miraculously heals their liver and gives them a new liver, and, and he would say, go and drink no more. Okay, uh, if you want to stay healthy, then don't go and do the thing that just got you in the ICU and killed your liver in the first place. And so that that is the uh, that's what I understand is happening in both circumstances is that uh, these two specific events were the were direct result of of actions that they were willfully and not on an isolated. In other words, woman caught in adultery. This wasn't a one time act. She was a prostitute who was doing this over and over and over again. So it wasn't a moment of weakness or infatuation or something like that. Uh, so he's telling, stop the destructive processes that brought you to this painful place. That wisdom still holds true for all of us. Regarding the childhood elements, uh, he is not saying go and um, uh, live free of all sin. He is saying go and uh, stop living the sinful patterns of life that you've lived in before. That's what he's actually saying. The childhood elements, 
It really depends. Uh, there is some wisdom in what you suggest here. Yeah, if, if you have, um, and, and there are certain therapies that I think are counterproductive to helping people, but it really, you cannot set a hard rule for all cases. You cannot. I will tell you there's, um, there's a, a general concept. If, if somebody um, attacked you with, a, with, a, with an iron pipe and broke your leg, and you ended up in a doctor's office with a broken leg in pain, um, and, and when you had it hit, they not only hit your, your leg, they also hit your head, and you have amnesia, you just woke up with a broken leg, you're not even sure what happened. Do we have to spend time figuring out how your leg got broken in order to fix the leg? Okay. So there's an aspect of, yep, you've got trauma issues, yep, you have trust issues, yep, you've got fear issues, you've got panic issues, you've got depression issues. There's an aspect of that that we can heal you, or, or whether we figure out why and how this came to be or not, um, to the degree that there are elements there, well, I know how it happened. I got abused and molested by this person, and I have lots of anger and resentment and bitterness, and I hate them, and I want to see them die, and I'm looking for the day they burn in hell. Well, then you've got to work through that. Because it's not simply working through history. It's right now active, causing problems, okay? And so you can't set up a hard, fast rule in this stuff. Uh, let's see here. Is it part of God's design for us to snip things or remove things to prevent us from having children or having more children? <laughs> yes, it is. Yes. It is absolutely part of God's design that you govern the gifts and abilities he has given you. When God gave Samson strength, it was God's design for Samson to govern and determine where and how he used that strength and for what purposes. Reproductive abilities are given to us by God, and we are to govern where and with whom we use those abilities and for what purposes. So yes, it can very be very much godlike to make those choices, and there are many circumstances uh, where people have various biological and other conditions where they make very intelligent choices that it would be harmful to them and perhaps future generations for them to have children, and so they choose not to have children because of some condition that they have struggled with, and it's genetic, and they don't want to pass it on. For instance, it's a very godlike decision. A good, example, a good example of giving your life for others happened this week in Bend, Oregon. An elderly man gave his life to stop a gunman who had already shot several people in a Safeway store. The man who stopped the gunman was a Christian SDA man who truly exemplified the character of God by giving his life to save others. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. I didn't hear that story. Did anybody else hear this story? No, none of us. No, that, that story probably won't get much airtime on the news. <laughs> No, no, seriously, understand, our country, the, the, the whole world right now, who do you think controls the, the governments of this world? Do you think that, that the Holy Spirit's controlling the governments of this world? Who do you think is controlling the medias of this world? Do you think the Holy Spirit's controlling them? No, the messaging is designed to incite fear and distrust and division and hostility and, and just a false narrative. I can tell you, even the children's programming. I watched a couple of programs with my grandkids recently, and these children G-rated programming is, is, is designed to infect your kids' minds with an anti-God, anti-biblical worldview, even though it's so innocent. And so, I, I, I won't even go into You see me after class, you want to ask, but, but I can tell you it is not politically correct for me to tell you what they're doing in children's programming. I'll just say that much. <laughs> the verse that has always in indicated to me... Oh, yeah, that, I, that, I already read that. Okay. 
Uh, I'm I'm reading these ahead to see if I want to share them all. I'm sorry about that, guys. (laughs) Because they're talking about me. I don't know if I want you all to know. (laughs) Dr. Jennings, so wonderful that you were nominated for and chose to follow God's lead to position at Liberty. Given that you have taken a strong position of truth and not taken sides politically, you have pointed out how both hard left and hard right wing's ideas fall short of certain areas. I'm impressed that Liberty would consider you as they sometimes seem like they might lean towards the right. Granted, they chose to not mandate things during COVID. Good for them. Uh, Can you comment on... Can you comment on... Okay, that must be it then. Yeah. So... I really can't comment. Uh, you're asking me to comment on the heart motives of other people. How am I supposed to do that? I can comment on what I know, what I know they did in a very worldwide coercive governmental pressures, mandates uh, from multiple nations, uh, false uh, propaganda of all kinds. They chose to stand by the principles of liberty. That's what they chose to do. They chose not to coerce their, their, their employees, their staff, or their students. They let people free to decide for themselves. Uh, th- that speaks a lot. That, that's huge. I, just, just, it, I don't know if you fully appreciate how huge that was. In the con- Now, we're two years out. You feel like you got your freedom back. Okay, so what's the big deal? Remember the context. Remember every, uh, so many other institutions caving in and giving in and, and coercing, including essentially the entire ad- worldwide Adventist church that supposedly has an entire religious liberty department and puts out a religious liberty magazine and advances the cause of religious liberty, they colluded for the coercion of consciences. It was quite, quite... Well, it brings to mind the Laodicean message. You make me nauseated, I want to vomit you out of my mouth. That's what it says about the Laodicean church. The word in Greek is emeo, from where we get emesis or vomit. It's not spit, it's... You, you make me sick to my stomach, and I want to vomit you out. You claim that you're here to protect the principles of God's kingdom and, and your people, but you're really protecting your institutions at the sacrifice of your people. So for me, I, I, I hope, uh, I, think, I think that the pressures that you point out are going to happen worldwide, and, and you're, they're going to happen at liberty, and people are going to be tempted just like they're going to be tempted here and everywhere. And this is where, hopefully, um, I will tell you, this message that we are preaching has to go to the world. You should contemplate why maybe I got this call. And why I got this call at this time. Do we believe, because I can tell you our board has been praying consistently that God will continue to open avenues for the message to go forward. Continue to bring workers to the field, as, the, as Jesus encouraged us to do. And, we, and I want to encourage all of you who, who love this message to, in your fields of influence, continue to share and advance this message and continue to lift us up in prayer. Continue to lift me up in prayer as I go, because I, I need your prayers. I'm sure there are going to be temptations I haven't considered yet. Can I add something to that? Yeah. Consider consider the vision that liberty is wanting to accomplish. They're wanting to accomplish a Christian-based psychiatry residency. And consider for a minute that how disappointing it is that Loma Linda didn't start this 50 years ago, or 60 or 70, or from their beginning. Why why hasn't an Adventist institution decided? Hey, we need to we need a 
a, a uh, biblical-based psychiatry residency instead of uh, promoting a humanist, uh, evolutionary, Freudian-type uh, system. When I finished my residency, my first book, Could It Be This Simple? You, many of you have read it. It, it. it was designed to help bring some of the principles of God into understanding the mind and how the mind works, and I've done more with the God-shaped brain and others since then. But I went to various leaders in the church and, and validated how, how great the Adventist church has done on um, bringing a physiological health message to the world. But the battle between Christ and Satan is about the mind, and we have tremendous biblical insights on the working of the mind and the principles of God for healing the mind. And it would be awesome if we could develop a a Christian um, mental health program that the church could put through its institutions. I, I, I there was there's no interest, none at all. Now I, we could have a conversation as to why that might be. I have my own biases, and 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 I can't I can't speak to the hearts and minds. I can look at history. The Adventist Church has a particular history in which a very powerful medical personality sought to wrest control of the church away from the theological leadership. Uh, are you familiar with that history? In the, in the 1901 and 1902, Dr. Kellogg, he was world-renowned. Uh, famous people from all over the world came to his. He he was on the leading front of medical technology and treatment and best outcomes in the world at the time, and he was well known. He, I mean, I, you can go back and look. Just look it up on on any encyclopedia and the famous people that came to to his institution, and he didn't think very highly of the the people in in theological leadership of the Adventist Church for a variety of reasons. Doctor Kellogg was brilliant clearly intelligent, highly educated, and most of the church at that time, leadership, had no biblical education at all. They were lay pastor people. They came, to, but they didn't have any official um, theological training. And he saw them as somewhat inept. And he thought some somewhat foolish. And so there was a big divide. And the church went against Ellen White's guidance and she guided and she wrote that the medical ministry and the pastoral ministry should be joined together and taught simultaneously on the same campus to the students. Because the medical ministry is the right arm of the gospel. Why? Because the medical ministry teaches design law. You cannot heal people while they violate the laws of health. You have to bring them in harmony with the laws of health, which are design laws. But after the, the Kellogg fiasco, the theological leadership did not want any connection with, with the physicians in the leadership. Not, not serious connection. Uh, because they feared perhaps losing control and power. Also, I think there's two, two reasons. One is control and power. Physicians in, in history have tended to make more money. They pay a bigger tithe base. They have to be very influential in small church groups and often sit on boards and, and, uh, and, and so forth. And they can often influence how things go. Uh, there is a threat uh, from power base, from money base, uh, and there's a theological threat. Physicians, because of the way they practice, are much more likely to advance design law plans of salvation, not imposed law legal penal models, and there would be a natural tension that would set up there. And so I think for those reasons, a division occurred, and we created the Theological Seminary in Michigan and put the Medical University in California. Let's not, let's not let the two meet. <laughs> and so our church has missed a great opportunity. Uh, Liberty University actually has it just the opposite. 
They have their theological seminary on that campus. They have their medical university on that campus. They see that the battle between Christ and Satan is a battle for the mind. They see that in the world in which we live right now, the greatest crisis threatening the world is mental health crises. They see that bringing Christian principles for the mind and bringing people back to a godly worldview and godly practices is is a wedge issue for the final conflict between good and evil. And they want to develop a program where you actually have trained professionals that understand how to wage war on the Christian battlefield, the landscape of the mind. I think it's beautiful. I think it's brilliant. I think God is opening an avenue for his final message to go to the world. I didn't mean to steal your thunder, Russell. <laughs> no, not yours. <laughs> okay, let's see here. Uh, thanks for another great class. I have noticed recently that there are many pauses with the connection to the live feed. Is anyone else experiencing this? Is this a possible technical problem, something with Odyssey? Uh, I'll have to. Uh, Dean, do you want to step out here and say anything or, or what? One, two, three, four, five. I guess not. Okay. So uh, email that to, um, to webmaster at commonreason.com and he can answer that question. Uh, just wanting to know why uh, when Jesus was here on earth, he didn't write a book about who God is. Is it because he was the book? Well, that's what it says in John 1. He was the Word, and the Word was made flesh and uh, dwelt among us. And uh, at the end of John, it says if everything that he, had, he actually did was written down, there weren't enough books in the world to contain it all. That's what it says. Uh, so... Let's see. The back and forth discussion in the last 12 minutes of class, I loved it and want more of that. We're talking about last week? Yeah. Last week. You and others, truth versus false doctrine. How are you going to do that in the new building if you are gone? Wasn't it one of the goals of our new place uh, who is going to take your place? So again, as I've, I've said, when I get to the new building, I will have, when I'm not there physically, which I plan on coming down once a month to teach monthly, uh, and we have a, our monthly potluck, uh, I will be having live Zoom so that the people in the room can have discussion back and forth with me live. So we can still do that. If you're watching um, not in the room, you'll just get a feed. Like you, if you watch any like news program and they have the commentator and there's somebody on the screen talking, you'll see it just like that if you're not actually in the room. So that's it. All right. Gracious Father in heaven, thank you so much for your love and for your mercy. Give us greater wisdom and discernment. And watch over us as, this, as, as we as a team, as friends of, of yours, seek to take this message to the world. Uh, give us greater insight, wisdom, power, and abilities to succeed for your purposes. We pray in your holy name. Amen.